Well, it's a joy to worship with you guys all this morning. I do want to take a few minutes to uh, give you a little bit of a state of the English congregation, state of the church. I think it's time, you know, the English pastoral team has been praying together, and uh, it's time to call you to come back. I, I know that Pastor Albert has called us to come back to the parking lot, and uh, now coming from the English pastoral team, it's time to begin to come back. I'm not talking about immediately, but in the days to come, we're going to have to rebuild our ministries. There are certain ministries that the rest of the church, the, the Mandarin and the Cantonese, they depend on the English to anchor. Now, what's unique about FCBC Walnut is that this is one of the Chinese churches where the lead pastors from the other side actually look to the English to lead. They look to us to set the course. They look to us to reopen. And so when it comes to children's ministry uh, and when it comes to youth ministry, that means that we need volunteers. We know that not every volunteer is in the health condition to come back, and that's okay. This is an opportunity for those of you who are able to come back to begin to check in with your department pastor or minister or director and begin to let your availability be known. Uh, we're looking at, for Cantonese and Mandarin as well, how that would work, right? If they were to come back in an earlier service, how we would provide children's ministries. Now, now we don't have... Uh, concrete plans yet, but what we envision is that we're looking at what's happening around us. We realize that the weather is only going to get hotter, number one. Number two, uh, we're realizing and we know that one of the greatest concerns for why we didn't want to gather uh, irresponsibly is for the frontline workers. But now, from our understanding, in the state of California, at least in Southern California, most critical frontline medical workers have received their second vaccine. We know that might not be the case all across the board, but we see that that population is being taken care of. We also see that those who are 65 and older are now beginning to slowly receive their second vaccine. And those would be the most susceptible in our society. Then we're looking at other special cases. And we know that most of us, like myself, probably won't get the vaccine uh, for quite a while. And one of the questions that we've been asked is, when are we going to go inside? Well, one of the reasons why we're not moving inside yet is because we're limited to a capacity of 25%. We believe that that's reasonable for our government to give us some capacity limitation right now. So at 25%, that's not sufficient for us to go inside. Secondly, uh, the health department says we're not allowed to sing indoors. That's their strong recommendation, and we want to abide by that. We want to sing out loud. We want to worship together, and we want to gather and to invite as many people back as possible, and that's why we're looking at outdoor options. We're looking at possibly more seating out here, spread out safely, face mask on. Uh, and if, if you're here, we want you to look at, I just want you to look at that flat ground over there. I think it's by God's sovereign grace that we didn't raise whatever it is, five to seven to nine million to construct the three-story building, what would, which would be phase B. We didn't know COVID was going to hit. If you look at that flat ground, it doesn't cost too much, and we have the funding to just cement the thing or, or to put concrete. And so there are plans for that, amphitheater style, a couple large steps going up to the side, securing it. And that's a large outdoor area large outdoor area where there can be some shading, where until people feel more comfortable, you can have 
certain supervised children's gatherings. You could have outdoor services while we live stream to those who are more susceptible and, and choose to remain in your vehicles. We can have those who are more comfortable begin to, to use that outdoor space. Okay, and eventually we can go indoors. So we want to begin to ask you to come back, but before we bring everyone back, we need the volunteers to come back. And so I just want to ask those of you who are watching at home to pray about it. We understand that there are some of you, look, like I said, I'm not going to be, I'm last in line to get a vaccine, right? My age range as well as, you know, I'm a pastor. You don't get a vaccine front. <laughs> you don't get to cut in front of the line for that. But we want to ask that we will be careful. We will continue to be wise. We will continue to abide by reasonable health department codes. Uh, and so be prayerful about it. If you're able to, please come back. And I mean it. And this is coming from our heart, and we're going to begin to be a church again. Okay, so love you. Thank you once again for joining us, for choosing to stick with us. I want to invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where this morning I find myself in one of the most awkward and peculiar positions ever. I've never in my life preached 1 Corinthians chapter 9, probably for good reason. If anything, this is a passage that maybe one of our deacons, such as Deacon Gordon, should ought to be preaching. <laughs> but we wouldn't put him in that awkward position either. Today's passage talks about the reasons why pastors like myself ought to be paid. <laughs> so you can see why that's a message that, that is difficult for us as pastors to choose to preach. But in the spirit of ex expository preaching, we finished 1 Corinthians 8 last week. And it just so happened that 1 Corinthians 9 is this week's passage. This week's passage lays out the reasons for why pastors have the right to make a living through full-time vocational ministry. In fact, today's passage provides the principles for why most churches in throughout church history have paid their pastors. And obviously, there are going to be cir uh, circumstantial differences for each church. I've entitled our engagement this morning, Financial Support for Faithful Servants. Financial Support for Faithful Servants. Key word is faithful servants. servants. I realize and we understand, we're all too aware that we are in a stage of evangelical scandal. More and more we're seeing Christian leaders that we once looked up to being exposed for evil sins, and a lot of times when you look into the financial structures, you see some corruption financially, a lack of transparency, a lack of accountability uh, in the financial boards as well. And certain ministers, leaders, and organizations have had to either step down or collapse because of this. You also see at times the dangerous decision where you see financial boards are stacked with family members of that particular well-known Christian leader. So I am by no means saying that pastors ought to be paid without accountability and transparency. There needs to be systems of accountability, transparency, and structures that work. And I'm grateful for our church that we have those types of structures. But what Paul presents today is that he presents reasons why it logically would make sense for full-time ministers to receive a salary out of their labor. 
But then what he does, which is even more awkward, is he takes the time to make a defense for why he has the right to reject that payment. So that's kind of a weird position for me to say, look, here's reasons why we should be paid, and here's why Paul says that he has the right to reject that payment. But he has good reasons for that as well. Paul himself was a tent maker. So a little bit of a background. Paul made, literally made tents for a living. He had a special, kind of a different lifestyle. Paul was single. He did not have to provide for a wife or a family, though he had the right to do so if he wanted to. Paul also didn't have one local church that would support him. No doubt we know that Paul's ministry received support in other ways. He would raise funds for different organizations and churches of his time. But he literally went from town to town, city to city, preaching as an itinerary preacher, as a church planter. He would spend time visiting churches that he would plant, as his, and they would be his spiritual children. He would go to another church to encourage them. At times, he would go into a town, having already planted a church, maybe on a second or third missionary journey, and he would have a place to stay. He would have food provided for. But there are times where he embarked in new territory where nobody knew him. And so he raised his own funds through tent making. Nobody have ever heard of the gospel. They didn't know about Christianity. And he wanted integrity in his message. So he went around raising his own funds. We know Paul. Paul often traveled with one or few teachers or one or few disciples and co-workers and co-laborers that would go with him. And that was his life. Sometimes he would travel from prison to prison, running for his life where in prison he would write letters. He would, he, 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 so he did need to raise some funds for, for the work of the ministry that he did, but he chose to tent make in order to do that. Today the word tent maker doesn't literally refer to tent making. And so that's what I mean by every church is unique and different. Tent making at times, there are certain churches where they have lay pastors. And a lay pastor would be someone who preaches and counsels, but they can't do that full time. So they're very limited in their commitment to the ministry because they work a secular job to pay for their needs, to pay for their family. But maybe the church is so small that they can't afford to pay a pastor full time, and that makes sense. So the church does what they can, but that pastor is a tent maker meaning they have a full-time job and they devote their volunteer service to some form of pastoral ministry. And so that's what some churches have. Some churches, they, they have a team of lay pastors that each of them contribute differently and that plurality of elders, uh, none of them being paid, would, would fulfill the work of the ministry. Other churches have a combination of paid pastors and lay pastors. There, there are some churches where they have bi-vocational pastors. And that's where a church tells a pastor, this is how much we could pay you, uh, but we know you have other needs, so uh, you can go ahead and take other types of work outside. And so you have pastors working in real estate or insurance sales or taking on some type of flexible work, and then they devote whatever time they could have to the ministry. And so that's called bivocational ministry, which is, which is uh, popular now more and more. And so you have everything from pastors being lay pastors to pastors being bivocational to pastors being full-time, where, where their income comes 100% from 
just their ministry and their commitment to that local church or that local body. And so that should set you up for the background. Now, getting into the text, this is a little more background because it has to kind of make sense why Paul's all of a sudden, you know, he's talking from about marriage and, and, and purity, and then now all of a sudden he's talking about Christian liberty, and then now he's talking about pay. Why is he talking about pastoral compensation? Well, what happened in chapter 8 is that he's talking about Christian liberty. And that's what Pastor Albert laid out last week. He's talking about Christian freedoms. And he's saying that we all have rights and we all have Christian freedoms. But there are times where we forsake, we refuse to receive those Christian freedoms in order that we don't cause people to stumble. And that would make sense that now in chapter 9, in verses 1 to 14, he, he defends his rights not to receive payments. And then in verses 15 to 18, he talks about why other pastors should receive payment for their ministries. And then in verses, uh, verses 15 to 18, he, he talks about why he himself didn't receive that payment. In verses 19 to 27, he further explains that he would give up any right for the sake of winning others for the sake of the gospel. So I'll explain this more later, but the main reason that Paul did not receive payment was that for him, whenever he went town to town, Christianity was a brand new ministry. It was a brand new movement. Christianity was in its, its infant stages. And there were a lot of false teachers. There were a lot of itinerary preachers preaching all different for different types of religious beliefs. And many of them, like prosperity preachers today, did it for financial gain, did it for money, wanted to draw on people's emotions to make money. And Paul himself, he did not want anyone to think that this brand new ministry, this brand new movement of Christianity was for his own selfish gain or was just for money. So that's why he refused the right to receive payment. He wanted to make tents. And he could. His circumstances in life made it possible for him. But after he planted those churches, and after those churches grew, he wanted to make sure that, that those who devoted themselves to full-time labor could receive payment and could devote all of their attention. And so I, I guess I could say amen and we're done. But you know we'll, we'll go in and go into the passage. Point number one this morning is Paul exercised his right to refuse financial support for his ministry. And we see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 19, verses 1 to 6. Let me read to you verses 1 to 2. Paul asks a bunch of rhetorical questions that are not meant to be answered. He says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others am I not an apostle, at least... I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. These are all rhetorical questions. We won't take the time to really elaborate on each one. But to the Corinthians, who he planted the church in Corinth, most of the Corinthians, especially the leaders, were the actual fruits of Paul's labor. He had not only won them over to a hearing and to conversion in the gospel of Jesus Christ, not only to intellectual belief and faith, but they had seen his life, that he is the real thing. 
that he's not out to get their money. So he asked them, of course he's free. Of course he has Christian liberties, which he talked about last week. Of course they respected him as an apostle, a sent one of Jesus Christ. I do think there's one phrase in here that I do want to elaborate on. And, and he says, have I not seen the Lord Jesus Christ? Why would he say this? Why would he say this? Because to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, a real official apostle, you had to have seen the Lord face to face, number one. And number two, Jesus himself had had, had he was the one who had to have sent you. He gave you a specific assignment, sent one, an apostle. And this is why the rest of the apostles were one of the original 12. Those were the apostles, Apostle Peter, Apostle John. Remember, Luke was not one of the original apostles. He wrote scripture, but Luke accompanied Paul in his ministries. Luke was not an apostle. He was very important, but not an apostle. But the other disciples, minus Judas, they were apostles. And Paul, when did he see Jesus? Well, we know specifically that Paul, in Acts chapter 9, on his way to persecute Christians on the Damascus Road, Jesus Christ revealed himself to Paul, knocked him literally off his horse, blinded Paul. Paul at that time, his name was Saul, and there's nothing that he saw <laughs> except for Jesus when he was blinded. And Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Meaning, why are you persecuting the church? So Jesus spoke specifically to Saul in that vision and called him, converted him, but then called him. And then there's two other visions recorded in Acts chapter 18 and Acts chapter 22, respectively, where, where he actually spent time. Somehow, we weren't there, we don't know, but in a vision, he spent time with Jesus re revealing himself to him. So Paul could witness to having personally met, uh, met the risen Christ face to face. And then when Paul says, are you not my workmanship, we know that this is an understanding of, of the Corinthians being the fruit of Paul's ministry. But I do want to explain a little bit this understanding of seal. Why does he say, you are the seal of my apostleship? What does that mean when he refers to the Corinthians themselves as the seal of his apostleship in the Lord? Meaning the proof that he is a genuine apostle, really sent by Jesus. We know that there's a lot of uh, Pentecost, well, I don't want to say that uh, in a derogatory way, ways, because there are some solid uh, classical Pentecostals as well. There are uh, some solid second wave guys. Uh, we might disagree on secondary doctrine, but they believe in Jesus. But there are some who are uh, maybe from the ultra-charismatic uh, denominations. Maybe we'll call them chari not charismatic, but charismaniacs. Right? Where, where their ministries are purely built on emotionalism and false doctrines of, of just uh, healing and just a holy laughter and all these kinds of weird things that we'll get into later when we get into 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. So the charismaniacs, there are some of those who they call themselves apostles, claiming that they are officially sent by Jesus Christ, that Jesus appeared to them literally and that they are still receiving brand new revelation. As Christians, we believe that uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ is complete with the closure of the canon of scriptures. But that with the 66 books that Jesus no longer speaks 
in uh, scripture to people, new revelations. Now, he might speak in different ways, but not in the way where you could put anybody's, any man's prophecy cannot be put on the same level as scripture. Right? And so we understand that. So what is he saying when he's saying what I'm telling you is, is actually equal to the things that Jesus said to his apostles and through the apostles? Well, in the ancient times, seals were used um, on containers of merchandise and on letters. There were, there were these real seals to indicate the authenticity of what was inside and to prevent the contents from being substituted or altered. And so you can see that some people would question Paul. You weren't one of the original 12. We didn't see you. See, for Peter and for people like Matthew and John, people could actually say, oh, yeah, we remember those guys. Those guys walked with Jesus everywhere. So when they say Jesus said, our Lord said, there's authority. But people look at Paul and say, weren't you the guy who tried to kill Jesus' people? Why should we listen to you? Are you just out for our money? And so he's saying, you are the seal. A seal was the official representation of the authority of the one who sent the merchandise or letter. You are that proof that I am a genuine apostle. You are the proof of genuineness. And that's what he means. And so we'll talk about that more uh, in the days to come. Uh, when, we, when we get into the spiritual gifts, when we talk about uh, Paul as an apostle and, and what he has to teach the Corinthians. But now, if you turn your hearts to verse 3, uh, Paul defends his reputation. So you kind of understand that there were actually people questioning him. And so in, 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 chapter, uh, in chapter 9, verse 3, he begins to defend himself. And he says, this is my defense to those who would examine me. This is my defense. And then, and then he goes into his defense. And in his defense, he, he lays out the words and the content of his defense in verses 4 to 6. Look at verse 4. And then 5 and verse 6. He says, do we have the right to eat and drink? He's talking once again about Christian freedom, but I believe that specifically he's talking about his Christian freedom here in light of financial provision, right? That's the context. So he's basically saying, don't I have the right to be able to uh, pay for basic necessities like, like food and provision? Verse 5, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife? as do the other apostles and the brothers of our Lord and Cephas. So this tells us a couple things. Cephas is once again Peter, that Peter, believe it or not, had a wife. Uh, one pastor that I listen to all the time, you know, he made a joke and he said, uh, God bless Peter's wife. And so if you know a little bit about Peter, I cracked up for about five minutes and I start to think, God bless my wife, you know, because I'm kind of stubborn like Peter. I always find my foot in my mouth. You know, Peter was the guy who, uh, real stubborn and, and kind of annoying and, uh, and emotional and erratic. Uh, and, um, you know, and, and I, just, I just thought it was funny that Peter actually could find a wife. But anyway, Peter had a wife. Um, and so many of the apostles were married. When it says Jesus' brothers, these are his, bio, uh, his, his uh, biological sons of Mary and Joseph. So Jesus had brothers. And so these would be Jesus' half-brothers because Jesus was born of a virgin birth, 
right? So apparently the other apostles were married, or at least most of them, we understand. But I understand this phrase, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, is not so much Paul arguing for the fact that apostles could be married, because no one's debating that fact. But he's saying, do I not have the right to be paid by the church so that I could support a family? That's what he's saying. Okay, that's the context of financial support. And then in verse 6, he says, or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? So that's where you see the context is being compensated in order to pay for a family because that's what he's saying. Or is it only Barnabas and I who don't have the right to receive payment so that we could eat, so that we could take along a believing, a Christian wife to support us uh, in the ministry? So uh, many commentators, uh, once again, say the right to take along a believing wife is basically to receive enough financial support to support not only himself, but his family. Okay, So that's the first point that we see. In, in point number one, we see the Paul... Paul exercised his right to refuse financial support for his ministry so that he wouldn't cause unbelievers who never heard about the gospel to stumble. But the second point is that Paul presents why pastors have the right to receive financial support for their ministry. So here's where he begins to get into his reasons. Now there's there's several reasons uh, some pastors say there's six reasons. Others say there's five reasons. I've consolidated to four reasons. Okay, so point number two, Paul presents why pastors have the right to receive financial support for their ministry. Reason number one, reason number one is common practice. It was common practice. So verse seven is pretty much self-explanatory. He says, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? He says, who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting, getting some of its milk? So this is self-explanatory. Any government-sanctioned military official is going to have his needs provided for. His shelter, uh, even, a, even payments, you know, the tools that he needs, whether that's weapon, weapons training, he's going to, he or she will be fed. Okay, so the military takes care of their own. Uh, so you don't have soldiers to say, okay, I'm going to serve as a soldier, but then I have to get another job as uh, an engineer or as an accountant. Right? Same thing with, with someone who plants a vineyard. So whether this is a farmer who's going to harvest some of their own, own food, of course a farmer is going to take some of their own food to eat and feed their own family while making a living out of selling those crops and those products but if you take vineyard to literally refer to a winemaker if i was if i had my own vineyard of course i would be uh you know drinking some of my own wine right of course they're going to be they're going to be taking some in fact if i owned a vineyard i might even find a local church uh, maybe a presbyterian church i know we're baptists we don't do that but a, a local church to kind of donate some of that some of those funds just giving you guys hints for uh, ways that you can you can bless Presbyterian churches. Pres PCA, Presbyterian Church of America, that's the conservative one. 
Um, but Presbyterians, you know, they, they are blessed in that way. And so what about those who tend, tend a flock? Of course, if you have a flock, you are going to drink some of that own milk while you sell some of it, right? So that's self-explanatory. I don't think we have to exposit that any further. That's the first reason. It's common practice. So why not pastors? If they put their labor in to receive their income from what they put their labor into. Now, reason number two, the Old Testament law shows that it was common practice for the priest to receive uh, receive uh, payment from, from being full-time priest. And then there's some teaching on this. Reason number two, Old Testament law. We see this in verses 8 to 12, and this is where I'm consolidating several illustrations. This is hilarious, um, but, but I'll read it to you. He says in verse 8, Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Now, I always found this illustration to be funny, right? Because that means like a pastor is supposed to be an ox dragging around a stone. And I just thought it's funny. And it's the year of the ox. So this is just great. But, but verses 8 to 9, uh, Paul's referring to Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4, from the law of Moses. Now, here's, here's the story behind it. So oxen uh, were allowed to eat as they worked. That's the idea. Here's how one preacher explains it. I'll put it into my own terms. Back in Moses' time, when the farmers wanted to separate the grain from the husk, they would place everything on the floor. So you put all of the grain, all of that stuff on the floor, and you would get these oxen because they're strong, and you would tie these huge flat stones to the ox. And so the ox would, would literally just move around carrying this stone. Now, if you wanted to be really foolish, you could put a muzzle. You could, you could muzzle the ox that's so stingy. So the ox, while, it, while that stone is moving around and breaking and crushing the husk and releasing the grain for you, uh, you're just basically saying the workers shouldn't eat any of the husk. And so that's foolish. So the idea of being wise is, hey, this oxen is, for goodness sake, he's dragging around a stone all day. If he wants to take a bite or two, let him take a bite or two. That's the illustration. All right, so that's the illustration. And it's so funny that he compares that to pastors. And he's saying that for the priest in the Old Testament and for pastors today, don't muzzle the ox. Don't muzzle the ox. And so sometimes people will say, well, the reason why Paul would use that illustration, and I don't know if this is the reason, is because pastors are preachers. And so don't silence the preacher that the preacher is not able to take the time to study the Word of God because he has to take a secular job to feed himself or to feed his family. And so some people have, have taken the liberty to abstract that principle to apply it to preaching, but it, it's quite a funny illustration when you imagine ox dragging around a, a stone and not being able to eat any of it. Okay. So that's, that's the idea. Now in verses 9 to 10, Paul goes on to make the point 
that if God is concerned about the ox, ox to get fed, don't you think he shows greater concern for feeding humans? The same example is illustrated through the example of a plowman or a thresher. The point being a worker should be able to make a living off of their labor. So verse 9, it says, is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It, it was for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope that the, and, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. And then in verses 11 to 12, Paul makes his point. He says he has every right to make a material living off his spiritual labor, off of his ministry, and he alludes to the fact that others charge them for services and they pay for these rightful services. He says others sell them goods and they pay for these goods. This is why Paul means if others share this rightful claim on you, do not we as full-time ministers even more. But he chooses <laughs> not to receive payment, as mentioned earlier, because he does not want to put a stumbling block in the way of the gospel. So let me read you verses 11 and 12. He says, If we have sown, just like the farmer sows and draws from his crops, if we've sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If we share this rightful claim on you, do we not, do not we even more? If others, I'm sorry, share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. So where he, here's her, where he talks about he's refusing the right to be paid. But we endure anything rather than to put an obstacle in way of the gospel of Christ. That's his point. He doesn't want to cause unbelievers who have never heard of the gospel to stumble. Now, reason number three is Old Testament practice. He goes on. So we see Old Testament law, but Old Testament practice. He says in verse 13, Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. Um, we see this explained in Numbers 18, verses 18 to 24. I always thought it would be funny. You know, it... You know, and, and so you, you get the self-explanatory idea that in the Old Testament, you would have people bringing animal sacrifices. Some of these are good animal sacrifices. And I guess the priests would eat those animals, right? They would eat some of that for their own food. And, and that totally makes sense. So I guess that totally makes sense now today when uh, out of the goodness of your heart, and how, how the Lord has provided for you. You don't bring animals. You, uh, you could bring us animals. I like a steak medium rare. But no, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. Don't do that. Okay. But uh, you guys give financial offering. And out of that offering, the personnel committee kind of determines, you know, how much pastors should be paid. And so uh, our payment and how we put uh, food on the table comes out of your offering. And so in the Old Testament, it was literally them eating the offering and eating a portion of that offering. And of course, when they abused their authority, whoo, the wind is strong today, you know, they were, a priest were struck dead. The Hebrew word for wind is ruach. So I like to say the ruach is strong today. Okay. Um, Reason number four is in verse 14, our final verse. Reason number four is Jesus' command. 
So not only do you have Old Testament examples and Old Testament law and Old Testament practice, but reason number four is that Jesus commanded in verse 14. It says, in the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So those who preach God's word should make the full-time living, if the churches are able to, by, by preaching the gospel and not by taking a secular job. And again, this is not a law saying that you can't tent make, because Paul was obviously tent making. But if possible, if the churches can afford to pay you, then it's much better that the pastors can devote themselves to full-time ministry. And in verse 14, that's why it says, in the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Now I want to jump to some, the big idea, and then give you, give you some uh, brief application. The big idea this morning is that Christ provides for his faithful ministers through the financial support of faithful saints. Christ provides for his faithful ministers through the financial support of his faithful saints. The application is that every local church needs to make sure that those who are receiving financial support for ministry are actually faithful. Paul gave qualifications in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and in Titus chapter 1 for the character qualifications for what is required to be a full-time pastor. And of course, that those qualifications would apply to lay pastors as well. So there is accountability. But I do want to say that today's passage is obviously not advocating for the lavish lifestyle of the prosperity gospel preachers. Now, there's a balance here. Because obviously, the principle of not muzzling the ox would go against, I would say, a lot of Chinese churches who I don't know why they want their pastors to be poor. And I'm grateful that that's not our church. But they want their pastor to just minimally survive. And so when you look at the pay scale compared to like white churches, some Asian churches pay very little, but they, because of the Asian work ethic, and I understand that, the immigrant grit, they want their pastors to work themselves to death. And so you do see a lot of pastors a lot of pastoral turnover in some of these churches. I have to say that. I think I can say that comfortably because I don't say that about our church. Our church has a personnel committee composed of none of, none of the personnel committee work for the church. None of the personnel committee have uh, our, our family members of, of the pastors. There's no vested interest for them. It's just more work for them. <laughs> They, they do hard work. They do COLA studies. So there's actually a burden on them. They do COLA studies. They study um, different insurance plans and how to take care of the pastors as well as how to steward uh, the, the financial funds well. So that's when the Obamacare uh, kind of kicked in and, and the insurance rates kind of changed. Like they did a lot of work, a lot of research. They, they do the, uh, the first stages of some of the, the interviewing. And, and, and so, they, so I'm so thankful. that And they have integrity. And, and this is a group that they don't look to make the pastors poor, you know, in any way. They're always looking out. Um, if one of our family members got really sick and the insurance wasn't able to afford it, I've seen how they've stepped up. And they've really taken care of us. 
And so, so I'm really grateful for our personnel committee. I think all of our pastors are. Um, and each year, they, they really do look at the cost of living and make reasonable adjustments. So there's a fine balance, right? There's a fine balance where pastors shouldn't be, because we are living off of offering money, that we shouldn't be living lavishly. But at the same time, pastors shouldn't be second-guessing you know, how they're going to uh, make, put food on their table or even afford to live in their communities. Uh, if you look at it, you know, one of the reasons that um, we're able, some of the pastors are able to uh, live in the media community is either our wives work or that, that uh, some of the pastors had a previous career. And so there's enough saved up. Um, and some of them, maybe they have family that can afford to. But most pastors who came in as rookies, and this was true of me um, prior to uh, my wife working as well, is that this area is just expensive. Uh, and so we understand that uh, if, if, you know, if people are going to work for a church like ours, most likely uh, unless they previously had another career, that you just can't afford to buy a house. Uh, especially in this area, you can't, and we understand that, and uh, some of you can't either, and we understand that. So, um, so there has to be some balance, right? So there has to be expectation uh, of do we want our pastors to be close to us, um, or do we want them to be uh, distant, but then we uh, pay more affordably? And this is real awkward for me to talk about this, but I feel like as a lead pastor, I'm the only one who could talk about it. You know, I don't expect the youth pastor to be up here talking to you about this. But I do want to say our church is very gracious and generous. And so we do want to pray that you, that you support and pray for our personnel committee. Encourage them. A lot of times you show us a lot of support. Um, they're taking care of us, so we support them. The other thing is that thank you so much for all of your generous uh, support for our pastors and gifts and all that. Um, for those of you who gave us um, Christmas gifts, I, I haven't gotten around to giving you your thank you cards yet. I'll get it to you uh, by, before next Christmas, I promise you. Uh, I will. I always do. You know, I forget when I give you the thank you card or I send it to you. I always say, sorry, this is so late. I forgot what this is for, but thank you. <laughs> so we'll get around to it. You know, it's just been a busy season for all of us. But thank you so much. So so there has to be that that fine balance, right, of taking care of your pastors. But at the same time, uh, same time pastors shouldn't be owning jets and yachts and all that. Right. We understand that. Um, especially in an age of evangelical scandal. Uh, something else that, um, that I want to say is that, that there should be some checks and balancing and practices. I alluded to this, but I want you to see how our church operates because, because you as the donors should understand is that uh, we understand that there should be some privacy. Like it is kind of weird if you're, if you're um, not trusting of the personnel committee and if you're always questioning, right, like I want to see a, a balance sheet. So there's always, um, if you're a member, if you come to the, the um, business meetings, there's always going to be a release. You know how you're always getting documents? Every budget is voted on. Sometimes you guys think that's tedious. But that's basically accountability, that there's budgets that get voted on. Even if it's just like a stamp of approval because there's other people making those budgets, at least you get to see all those are. And every year, you're going to see the personnel. And that includes uh, not just pastors, but all staff. And so you're going to see that budget line. And if you ever have questions, you can always ask uh, the finance department, or you can always ask. Okay? Uh, it's all transparent. Every single time our housing allowance gets voted on, at least the amount that we're supposed to report to the IRS uh, that we're setting aside as a tax shelter, uh, that's put out. Now, we need to be honest, but that's put out. 
And when we're hired, when you vote on us, right, not only do you vote for us, but you notice that they always put in, we're bringing in this person at this position, and then some type of starting salary is put up. I mean, I don't think that that happens outside, but there's accountability, right, within the church. So there's always that. And the people on the personnel committee, we try to make sure that that's not our family members, right? But we know that there's a rare occasion, and this has been the case, where you have someone on the personnel committee, and then 15 years later, I mean, they're still serving because a lot of people don't want to do that type of administrative work. They're still serving. And then their son uh, is more than qualified, like goes into the ministry. Uh, and then so what do they do? Uh, and so at that point, if, if, if they're being considered for an internship or something, uh, or they're considered uh, some type of interview or something, or some distant relative, then our practice is if there's any type of relation at all, relationship at all, and if you're discussing that particular staff member's pay or hiring or anything, you have to recluse yourself, meaning you remove yourself from 100% of the discussion. And we've been able to practice that. We've been able to practice that, okay? So, um, so I want to say that um, I am so thankful that our church has been above board. And if you ever have questions, especially because we live in an age of evangelical scandal, that if you ever have questions, I want to reassure you that you can ask us and you can always be assured that the people that you have voted for, the people that you have entrusted uh, with, with, uh, with overseeing the money, that from, from our stand, standpoint, uh, that everything is above board. And that's why I want to encourage all of you that there's a reason why we have reimbursements. There's a reason why I can't sign off on my own reimbursements. There's a reason why I have to submit to an officer if, I get a, if I'm asking for something from his or her department. And so sometimes you guys might seem like it's tedious. Why doesn't our church have credit cards? Why, uh, why do I have to file reimbursements? Why do I have to pass this budget? How come if it's over a certain amount, it needs to go through a business board? Guys, this is why. So that nobody ever would stumble and question how we use funds when we're doing so based off of donations for the sake of the gospel, for the glory of Jesus Christ. And again, I hope that this morning, because of a sermon like this, you can know that we mean it when we tell you we love you so much more than you know. Thank you. So let me pray for us. Father, so grateful for this church. This church stands on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. We know that this church has been a faithful and generous church, not because the pastors are great or not because our systems are sure-proof, but because of people's faith in the Word of God, because people believe in the Word of God. And so each and every person believes in accountability, believes in going the extra mile to make sure that we're transparent and accountable, that we all submit to each other. We all exercise leadership. We all benefit from this system. And so, Lord, I want to thank God for a generous church, a fruitful church, a church that stewards well, a church with faithful people. And God, we pray, Lord, that you would continue to take care of us. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to provide for us financially. We pray, Lord, that you would even protect our church from the Equality Act and so that we can continue to operate at a nonprofit status and continue to run. 
Lord, thank you for providing us this new building. We know, Lord, that we're not going to have a mortgage because generous people have given over the decades so that we can pay for, for some of these needs. So thank you, Lord. Lord, we don't talk about money often, but when we do, Lord, we pray, Lord, that you would be blessed and honored by every word that we say. Father, we pray, Lord, as we go now, that you would challenge us each week to live for you. We know that even though COVID rates are going down by a lot, that our fears are still real. That especially as Asian Americans too, we uh, tend at times to be even more cautious as part of our personality. I know it's a stereotype, but it's true. And so, Lord, I pray, Lord, that we would take steps of reasonable and calculated faith and courage to take steps, whether that means uh, when the time comes and we need to send our kids back to uh, school because they've reopened, that you would help us to make that decision. And if we need to come back to church in person, that you would help us to make that decision. That if we have, a make, if we have to decide on whether or not to take the vaccine or not, uh, that's a matter of Christian freedom and liberty, that uh, you would help us to make that decision. So we submit all of these freedoms to you, Lord, that you would guide us. In Jesus' name that we pray, amen.